0: And so let's go ahead and do that now. I'm going to read from Luke 3, uh, 1 through 20. And as it was said to the children, there's been a back and forth between John and Jesus throughout the early parts of Luke. And then we finally hear of when John is an adult uh, in John 3, 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the, reign, or during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go ahead and pray together and ask for God's blessing upon the word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves but you have spoken you break into our lives through the word and you break into our lives in the one who is the word made flesh the Lord Jesus Christ help us this morning as we humble ourselves together before your word to hear from you to receive food from your spirit that we might know even more of the life that is ours in Jesus Christ and be changed into his glorious image from one degree of glory to another. For we pray in his name, amen. Every once in a while, I hear a story that reminds me of what happens when God's voice breaks through to sinful hearts. There's a number of them. Uh, It doesn't take long to see that and to hear that, but one of my favorite ones is what happened to a particular Muslim man who came over to America to become a medical doctor. And one weekend, while he was at a conference in the medical field, and he was at a hotel, he pulled open the drawer, and what did he find? A Gideon's Bible. And by the end of the weekend, he read through the whole New Testament. Even though Muslims aren't supposed to read it, he couldn't help himself. He was curious. And by the end of the weekend, and being done reading it, he repented of his sins, and he put his trust in Jesus Christ. He went on to actually get a Ph.D. from no other than Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And now he is in the Middle East strengthening the church wherever he goes. Now, of course, it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes it's more slow and steady when the word breaks in. Sometimes it's slowly taking away the roots of sin in our hearts so that we come to know Christ more and more in time. But whether it's dynamic like this man or ordinary like in many other ways, we see the point of Hebrews 4 all over the place. That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of joint and marrow. It reveals the thoughts and intentions of men. And in our text today, we see something of this reality as the word of God comes to John and flows out from him. We see the power of God's word as his voice breaks in to the world. And so what we're going to see in our text today is seeing you have an outline in front of you, I believe, in your, uh, in your bulletin. And what we're going to see is that when the word of God comes upon us as it did in the day of John, as it did to him and flow out from him, as this happens, it puts the chaos of the world in proper perspective, confronts the chaos of our hearts, and it does this all so that we would see and receive Christ as Lord. And so in the first place, we'll see that when the word comes upon us, it puts the chaos of the world in proper perspective. Luke 3 begins with an introduction of John the Baptist's ministry. And it's an introduction that you've been waiting for throughout the Gospel of Luke, as you guys have been seeing in recent weeks. That uh, John was announced as he was a baby, uh, before he was a baby. And it was proclaimed when he was born that he was going to be great and prepare the way of the Lord. And now, many years later, here's John the Baptist. And he's here to prepare the way of the Lord. The time has now come. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets right before the coming of the Lord, as was promised in the Old Testament. And in verses 1 and 2, we see a very long sentence that intentionally sets the historical context for John's ministry. If you run down these list of names, you will not only see the name of the emperor at the time, but you'll also see local political and religious rulers in and around Jerusalem. These were the sort of movers and shakers uh, in the world of the day. And so we read of Tiberius Caesar, of Pontius Pilate, of Herod, and his brother Philip, some guy named Lysanias, and even the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. And some of these guys, like Lysanias, are completely unknown. We don't really know a whole lot about them. Others are pretty powerful, like Tiberius Caesar. But others are known to be those who persecuted the church. Those like Herod that we find out at the end of this section, in verse 19 and 20, that he actually put John in prison because he didn't like to hear his rebuke. This was a day of chaotic rulers who were persecuting God's people. And we even see in this list that Pontius Pilate And Herod and Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests during this time period, were even going to be responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, these rulers' reigns were reigns of sinful chaos. But Luke wants us to see, by putting John's ministry in perspective of these leaders, in the perspective of their reigns, he wants us to see the chaos of the world in proper perspective. Because in this year of rulers, the most important thing going on in Rome or Judah or in the temple was not that these men were in rule. But the most important thing going on at the time was that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. The most important thing was not the words that these rulers and leaders would speak. The most important thing going on in any time in the history of the world is not the words that we hear on C-SPAN. But it's the words that come from the living God. And Luke wants us to know that. See, that puts the chaos of the world in proper perspective. And we see this even more in what follows. Because as Luke goes on to show the significance of the word coming to John, we see how the word puts our chaotic world in perspective. We get a hint of this already in the fact that the word came to John in the wilderness. And if you were a Jew, you would know the wilderness very well. Because the wilderness was a place of their disobedience. It was a place where they had to wander for 40 years after being taken out of Egypt by the grace of God and then disobeying so many times that the first generation had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet at the same time, the wilderness was a place of grace. Because throughout that time of their wandering, God was feeding them with manna. He was giving them water when there was no water to drink out of the rock. He was providing for them, even fighting against their enemies in the midst of their sin. God was being gracious to his people. And so the wilderness became this theme throughout the whole Old Testament of a time, a place where God would show grace to his sinful people. So when there are promises of a future day when God would break in again and show grace and salvation and forgiveness of sins, it's always tied to the wilderness. And here we find John the Baptist ...in the wilderness... ...and the word of God coming to him. And we see this even more... ...as Luke goes on to connect John's wilderness message... ...with the wilderness message of Isaiah 40. Luke says that John went into the region... ...proclaiming a baptism of repentance... ...for the forgiveness of sins... ...as it is written... ...in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... ...prepare the way of the Lord... ...make his path straight... Every valley shall be filled every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all the flesh and all flesh shall see the salvation of God Now these verses are profound enough as they stand but when they're seen in the context of Isaiah 40 as I know you've already seen something of the context of Isaiah 40 in recent weeks it opens these up Isaiah 40 is the beginning of a section in the book where God is promising future comfort and deliverance to his people. You heard just a few weeks ago about how in Isaiah 40 there is this promise right from the beginning of comfort, comfort to my people. So Simeon was actually waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for this comfort. And it's in that context where there is going to be the end of strife forever, the end of sins. Sins will be forgiven The ends of enemies that fight against God's people. There would be a revelation of God's glory. And salvation would go out through all the nations of the earth. And because this monumental day of the Lord was coming, Isaiah gives this image of a voice who's preparing for the coming of the Lord. There needed to be a monumental preparation for a monumental inbreaking of God. And it's an image that we're given that is something that happened fairly frequently in the ancient world. When a king would come into a place, there would be people that would go in front of them and level out the way and make it easier for them to enter in. Sometimes roads were not great, so they cleared the path. But this is something a lot bigger than that. This is whole mountains being laid low, whole valleys being lifted up, crooked ways made straight. For the coming of the Lord, there had to be a monumental preparation. And what Luke tells us is that John is the one who's bringing about this monumental preparation for the monumental coming of the Lord. And it's not coming through the upending of mountains and valleys. It's coming through the upending of our lives, the preparation of hearts. And when you see and understand this, friends, this puts the world in proper perspective. The Word of God brings us face to face with the inbreaking of God in the world... In fulfillment of his eternal plan of promise. We don't have prophets like John... ...who received the word in the wilderness. When Josh and I study... ...we don't normally go out in the wilderness... ...to get something and then come back. We get it from the word of God. We get it from scripture. And every time you read scripture... ...and every time, especially when you hear it preached... ...this is the living God speaking... ...eternal promises into the world. He is declaring who he is... ...revealing his character... He's promising of a day when there would no longer be sorrow or sin, but we would see God face to face. And when you understand that, that that's what Scripture brings to us, that puts the world in perspective. Because there are greater things to be concerned about than what goes on in news cycles, in celebrity news gossip. gossip, There are greater things to be concerned about than even what's going on in Iran and in China. We should be concerned about these things. But when you see it in the context of God's word, there are greater things to be concerned about. There are even greater things to be concerned about, believe it or not, than the Packers. (laughs) See, there are a whole host of things in this world that are good to be concerned about. But when you understand and see and receive the word of God, it puts all those things in proper perspective. What we need more than anything is to realize that our lives are not bound up with things that come and go. No matter how devastating or fun news cycles may be, the word of God does not go up and down with the changing patterns of history. The word of God breaks in and shapes history and changes history. And when you understand that, everything comes into perspective. God is coming, John tells us, as Savior and judge in fulfillment of promises from long ago. And he calls us to respond. And this leads us to what we see next, because the Word of God not only puts the chaos of the world in proper perspective, it also confronts the chaos of our hearts. As we've already mentioned, the way in which John was preparing God's people for the inbreaking of God was through his ministry of the word he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins John was calling people to deal with their hearts in preparation for God breaking into the world God was coming to bring salvation he was coming to establish his rule and reign but to receive his rule and reign they needed to be repentant they needed to have hearts that were softened and prepared to receive him. Now the call to repent, as you might know, means more than just changing your mind intellectually. It means more than even turning over a new leaf and doing some better things. It's even more than just feeling bad about your, thing, uh, about your sins. It's even more than just grief. But it's actually a deep grief over your sin that spills over into new actions, So that you're leaving your path of sin and going toward God. That's what repentance is. And this is why baptism uh, was an appropriate sign of this. It was a sign of their commitment to turn from sin to God. To turn away from what bound them in their hearts. And now it's important to note here, and I'm not going to get into this in any greater detail than just to state it. But this is not the same as new covenant baptism. This is not the same as what would come in the culmination of Christ's death and resurrection as believers uh, and their children are baptized into the covenant community. This is why in the book of Acts, there are times when those who have been baptized by John are actually baptized again into Christ. And so this is not the same. There's connections, but it's not quite the same. It was to be be a sign of their repentance, a sign of their preparation, understanding their sin and turning toward God. And around this time, there were actually others who were baptized ...baptizing themselves in preparation for new phases of life. It was even the case that Gentiles... ...when they were going to become worshipers of the Lord... ...they were going to become Jews... ...they would baptize themselves to cleanse themselves... ...and prepare for this new phase of life in a new community. And it's the same thing as other Jews in the day... ...when they wanted to be more committed to the Lord... ...and uh, do something more crazy in terms of their obedience... ...they would baptize themselves as an outward sign... ...that they were doing something new... And so John's baptism is kind of like that, but it's also a lot more. It was a sign of radical transformation and preparation for the coming of God. And in verse 7, as John takes up preaching to the crowds, we see just how serious he is about this call to repent and for baptism to be a a true sign that they are repenting. Because as people are coming to be baptized, uh, he says, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, this is not normally something that a pastor says to people that are visiting. Josh did not, as we were walking in, say, you brood of vipers. But John here is doing something really important to get people to see the seriousness of their sin. To be called a viper in that day was essentially to be called an immoral and violent person. That's what a viper signified. They were seen as violent creatures. And to call somebody that meant that you're calling them immoral and violent. And it may even be, not for sure, but it may even be that he's calling them something like offspring of Satan, the ancient serpent. And so he's calling them here very strong words as people are coming to him to be baptized. He wants to be clear. Understand who you are. Understand the chaos in your hearts understand that you are sinful and so he confronts them head on and he also wants them to understand the consequences of remaining in sin and not truly repenting he wants them to know that being baptized isn't just taking a dip in the water because everybody's doing it he wants them as they come to be baptized to know that this is preparation for wrath That God is breaking into the world. And so don't just come and do what everybody else is doing. Bear fruits, he says, in keeping with repentance. Make your repentance real. Know that your repentance is real. He wants them to respond genuinely to the word of God coming. And to be prepared for the coming of God. See, he doesn't want them just to have the sign of repentance without actually repenting. Without actually humbling themselves. And so he confronts them with hard words so that they would see the seriousness of their condition and flee from it. And although it hurts, the same thing is true for us as well in our own day. We need the word of God to speak into our life and confront us with our hearts. We know a lot of times intellectually that what Jeremiah says is true. We will say that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? But we don't always really grasp just how bad we are, just how sinful we are, that we are bent toward wickedness if left to ourselves. And we need the word of God to break in and expose our hearts to show that we are bent toward loving and embracing sin more than loving and embracing God. And if we never come to grasp this, John wants us to know, as he let his people know, God wants us to know that we won't be ready for the day when God comes, not only as Savior, but also as judge. Because just like they were, we're, we're still waiting. As it was said this morning to the kids, and have you guys have been hearing, we're still waiting for the day when God is going to come back in Christ, when Christ is going to return. He has come and brought salvation. But the decisive judgment that John is warning of is still yet to come. And so we, like them, are still waiting for that day. And we, like them, still need to heed these words and to turn from our sin and to rest in Christ and him alone. The only way to be ready for the day of judgment is to deal honestly with your sin before God and turn from it to him. To rest in Christ alone, as we'll see a little bit more of later. And as John continues to press further, he reveals a particular barrier to seeing this need, to seeing the chaos of our hearts. He says in verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, in the years leading up to Jesus, there was this rising theology among the Jews that would overvalue their lineage, their bloodlines. They thought that because they were the offspring of Abraham, they couldn't possibly be judged. Judgment was for those all around them. Judgment was for the Romans who were afflicting them. Judgment was for the Gentiles all around them. Judgment was for the Samaritans. Judgment may have even been for Herod because they didn't like him very much. But judgment wasn't for them. They were the offspring of Abraham. They belonged to the holy family of God. But John makes plain to them that their whole posture is wrong because being children of Abraham was never a call to complacency. Being the children of Abraham was a gift, but it was a call to bear fruit. It was a call to live for the God that chose them and brought them to to himself. And if they didn't see that, they missed the whole point. God could raise up children from stones. He didn't need them. He didn't owe them grace. And he wanted them instead to bear fruit. To live as his people. To deal honestly with their sin. But instead they're banking on their bloodlines. Rather than coming clean with their sin. They're trusting in their status. As the people of God. As though that was all that they needed. Instead of coming clean with sin and repentance and faith. And for us as Presbyterians, we do need to be aware of this tendency. We put high value on being in a covenant family and being born and raised into a covenant family. And we should. It is a blessing for all of our kids to be born and raised in a Christian home. It's a blessing that God chose for them, for them to be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be baptized into the promises of God. But the ultimate goal is always that they would lay hold of the promises. That they would come to know what they've been baptized into. That they would understand that Christ came as Savior and that signified in their baptism. And so at some point or another, our children have to see that being in a covenant home and being in the church doesn't make them right with God. They have to come clean with their sin. They have to repent. They have to turn to Christ. We have to let them know that. And for all of you kids here, you have to know that. That it is a gift to be in the families that you're born into. But God put you there so that you would know Him, that you would trust in Him, that you would bank upon Christ alone for salvation. And the same thing, this same reality can actually be true for all of us who are in the church, it's not just for kids. We can all tend to think that just being in the church or serving in the church, being an elder or a deacon or being active somehow makes us right with God. Instead of realizing that we have deep problems in our hearts that we need to come clean with to God, that we need to confess our sins and receive forgiveness through his son. See, people can be members of the church for a long time without ever really dealing with sin. It's always a sad case when you hear about these stories, but there's a particular uh, writer that, a ma- that talks about a man that he knew who was a missionary. And he was a, seemed to be a good missionary, born and raised in a Christian home, seemed to love the Lord, and decided after going through medical school and getting married and having kids that he was going to go in to the mission field as a medical missionary. And while he was there, he ended up having an affair with a nurse on the mission field. And they ended up calling him back, and the church that sent him out confronted him and talked to him about this affair, calling him to repent. And his response was, why are you guys picking on me? He wasn't willing to deal honestly with his sin. He didn't have a genuine relationship with Christ. See, for all of us who are in the church, we always have to be aware of hypocrisy. We need to understand that what we're called to is a genuine heart before the Lord that recognizes our sin and turns from it to Christ for salvation. And if we don't come to him, John gives us these hard words that we won't receive Christ as a savior when he comes again, but we'll have to face him as judge. And it's clear, at least to some who respond to John in his message, that they understood this and they responded with genuine repentance. The crowds ask in verse 10, what then should they do? That is, uh, what should they do to bear these fruits of repentance? What does that look like? He said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And they come to him and say, what should we do? And so he says to them, give to those in need. If you have two tunics, give to the one who has none. Live a life of generosity. Then tax collectors come to be baptized and ask the same. And he tells them, don't collect more than they're supposed to. He's telling them not to be greedy for unjust gain. And then you have these soldiers that ask the same, what do we do? And he says to them, don't get money deceitfully and by force, but be content with what they make, with the funds that they have and they receive in their job. And in all of this, and it's not exhaustive, we see that repentance shows itself in the ordinary stuff of life. These are fruits of repentance. How do you know that you're truly repentant before the Lord? And he says, this is what it looks like. Being generous as God has been generous to you. Being merciful as God has been merciful to you. Don't seek to gain things just for yourself and being all about you. But when you're truly repentant before the Lord, you actually let go of those things that are all about yourself. And you begin living lives of increasing selflessness. And that's what he's saying here. And again, it's it's not exhaustive. He doesn't get into every situation that there is in terms of what fruits of repentance look like. But this is what John ultimately wants for the people. He wants them not to be enslaved to sin anymore, to let go of it, to repent of it. And this is what it looks like. This is why he preaches strong words to them because he wants them to manifest fruits of repentance, to know that, yes, God's wrath is coming. But you don't have to be subject to it. Turn from your sin to the Lord and bear fruits of repentance. And for us, just as it was in their day, to respond in the same way, we need the word of God to reveal the chaos of our hearts so that we would turn away from our sin, that we would flee from it. But we also need to see something else, and this brings us to our last point. Repentance always has two sides. Two sides. It's what we're turning away from. And even as we've said time and again today, that is what we're turning away from and turning to. There's both sides there's faith and repentance. And those are two sides of the same coin. That when you turn from sin, you're always turning from it to Christ. And when you're putting faith in Christ, you're always putting faith in Christ as you turn from your sin. And this is where John ultimately goes next. In fact, this this is where this whole text is going repenting is never an end in and of itself. Repenting is a turning from sin in order to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this is our last point, that we've seen that the word of God puts the chaos of the world in proper perspective and confronts the chaos of our hearts. And this is all so that in the end we would see and receive Christ as Lord. This whole section is preparation. It's preparation for the coming of the Lord so that the people of God would deal honestly with their sins and receive him. And so in verse 15, we see how John intentionally points away from himself to Christ. While all were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John openly declares that he's not even worth comparing to Christ coming after him. I mean, it probably was in some ways uh, sort of a commendation of John that they're comparing him. Maybe he's the Christ. But the most wonderful thing about John the Baptist is not how powerful his preaching was that made them think this. It's the fact that he's willing to say, I'm not even worth comparing to the one who's really worth talking about and looking to. And he gives three specific contrasts between him and his ministry and Christ. First John says that the one coming after him is mightier than he is. It's not just that he is the, he's not the Christ... He says he's not even on the same level as Christ. In fact, this might be an allusion to the very might and strength of God that's expressed in Isaiah 40. That same text that talks about the comfort and consolation of God that was coming in Christ. Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. With might. And here John is saying that the one coming is mightier than he is. John was not just coming with a little more. Or Jesus was not just coming with a little more strength than John. He was coming with the very strength of the living God. And then, second, John goes on to even say that he's not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And he's talking at that point about the role of servants in that day. One of the worst roles that even the servants didn't want was taking care of the sandals of their master's feet. Because in that day, all the walking that you did. Would have made your feet pretty gross. And so even the lowliest servant sometimes, it was actually considered a dishonor to the Jews to have to carry and untie your master's sandals. And John says he's not even worthy to do the lowliest role for Jesus. He's not even worthy to be the lowliest, the most lowly slave. And then he gives a third contrast that shows the difference of their ministries. He says that while he baptizes with water, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is referring to the gift of the Spirit that's going to come for all those who turn and trust in Christ. And he's also talking about the judgment of fire for those who will refuse to come to Christ. See, in John's ministry, he was proclaiming that salvation and judgment was coming. But in Jesus' ministry, the salvation and judgment comes. He is the one who holds it in his hands. He is the one who brings it. John is just the one pointing away from himself to Christ. And his whole reason for pointing out sin is to get to that point. Even as he says strong words, he's trying to get them to see the reality of their sin, to go to the one who's mightier than he is. He says in verse 17, as he continues to expand upon this, that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The threshing floor in the Old Testament was a well-known image. It was a well-known image for judgment. That when they were harvesting wheat, the farmer would throw it in the air. The wind would separate the heavier grain from the lighter chaff and the chaff would be thrown away and burned in the fire and the wheat would be gathered in and this is an image for what christ is doing he is the one who is bringing salvation and judgment so this image would not necessarily have been shocking to the jews but perhaps what would have been shocking is just how serious the judgment is that he's preaching He's talking about the eternal nature of the judgment. Just in in their days, it was the same thing as in our days. That there is question about just how long God's wrath would be. Would it be something where somebody would be annihilated? It's a view that's still out there today. And John is saying, as he quotes from Isaiah, that the judgment will be unquenchable fire. John, as he's been doing throughout, is using strong and shocking language. But the purpose of his strong and shocking message is not just to shock us, but it's to shock us into genuine repentance and faith in the one who's coming after him. It's to shock us into turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants more than anything for these people to be ready for the coming of God-made flesh. He wants them to receive him. This is why in verse 18, after this very fiery section, Luke says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Some commentators kind of waver at this point, and they think, how could this be good news? He's been preaching judgment throughout this whole section, but they're missing that the preaching of judgment was never to stay there, but for people to wake up and to see Christ who is coming after him. It was always pointing beyond him to the one who would bring salvation to his people. John was not calling the people to give up their sin just to give up their sin. He was not interested in people being good for goodness sake. He wants them to change. But he wants more than just transformation for the sake of transformation. He's also not just saying turn or burn. He's not just saying, turn and escape the judgment, although he wants them to escape the judgment. But at the core of John's message is turn and receive. He wants them to see the reality of their sin and its consequences so that they would come to know the one who is bringing eternal comfort and salvation. The God made made flesh who would come and deliver his people from their sins. He wants them to know the good news of a Savior. He's preaching good news with exhortation so that they would see it and receive it. That's what he wants for them. This is what God wants for us every time the word of God is opened, for us to see our sin so that we would come to know Christ, either for the first time or with greater and increasing intensity. And as Luke goes on throughout the rest of his gospel, we see just how worthy Christ is to turn to. Because while Christ, yes, he is the one who would return to bring this eternal judgment that is being proclaimed here. He would only come to bring that judgment after he first took it himself. He would only come and bring judgment after he took the wrath of God himself on the cross. He's a savior that's worth turning to. He's a savior that is worth leaving your sin to know, to enjoy. Because he is the one who entered into all of our misery and even took our sins on the cross. He wants us to come to him. And so whether you've never done that before, and you need to repent decisively to come to Christ and know this salvation. Or whether you've been walking in the church for a long time. Even faithfully. This is a message that we constantly need. We constantly need to see the chaos of our hearts. We constantly need to know of the goodness of our Savior. And the more and more we do this and bow down in humility before our Lord, the more and more we'll be ready for Him to come again. And His coming will not be one of judgment, but it will be one where He sees us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master That's what he wants for us. That's what John wanted for God's people. Sometimes we need hard words to see this and receive it. But when you understand the reality of your sinfulness and come to know Christ, you enter into the joy and blessing of the God who loves us. And even in his son has given himself up for us. Let us look to him with increasing intensity and be ready for his coming with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you even for giving us hard words as you speak to us. Because as you give us hard words, you don't do so as an evil master, but as a loving father. And you want us to see the severity of our sin and situation so that we could know the eternal and lasting joy of the one who's loved us and given himself for us. Help us to see this more and more as we go on our way, that we'd see the world in proper perspective and see our own sins so that we'd see the glory of a savior who's come for us. For we pray in his powerful name, amen.